Hi, I'm Tori Bruno, and you're listening to SpexCast, brought to you by RIT Space Exploration. So, Mr. Bruno, my name is Phil. I'm a member of RIT Space Exploration here in Rochester, New York, and with me today is TJ. Hello, this is TJ. Nice to meet you, Tori. Hi, TJ. Good to meet you, too. And we also have Drew. Hi, Mr. Bruno. This is Drew. Hi, Drew. And we have Chris in the booth. He can't talk to you right now, but but he's listening. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we're recording this for SpexCast. We're at Space Exploration Podcast. And we're going to ask you some questions about the United Launch Alliance, uh, your personal experiences, and the space industry in general. So before we get started, um, I'd like you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Well, my name is Tori Bruno. I'm the CEO of United Launch Alliance, the largest and most prolific space launch company. And for the next hour or so, I am your personal rocket scientist. Thanks a lot for um, talking with us today and being so active on social media. As a space nerd myself, I really appreciate what you've been doing, getting in touch with the community. Oh, I'm, I'm happy to do it, and I have an awful lot of fun when I do it. TJ, would you like to ask uh, yeah. Mr. Bruno our first question? Sure. So uh, your time at uh, ULA uh, back in 2014 started a period of restructuring for ULA. Uh, do you think that restructuring is kind of finished and you're kind of ready to go forward, or are there still more big changes uh, for ULA in the future? Well, TJ, this is really part of a large-scale transformation of our company. And this is going to continue really until the new product offering, the Vulcan Asus rocket, is available and out flying. So, no, we're not done yet. You know, we've done a lot of heavy lifting over the last couple of years, taking costs out of our supply chain and that sort of thing and restructuring our team, but still a lot of work ahead of us. Was that a pun? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe just a little. Yeah, so... Um... During the restructuring, uh, has there been a like culture change? Or is are your employees like more excited? Because uh, we're going to talk about some of the stuff you're proposing and working on, which for us is really exciting. Vulcan and Asus are really you know bold new projects. Is there uh, that excitement at the company now? Well, there is. It's always exciting to look into the future and do something that is absolutely revolutionary. And our vision for this capability, especially on the Asus reusable upper stage. And the new missions that's going to create in space is very energizing. And to kind of continue that thought, um, with these new innovations and um, new capabilities that are coming onto the market, how do you factor in heritage and flight history? Obviously, in the space industry, um, we build off of decades of experience, but how do you balance the new ideas with the old flight-proven ones? Well, that's a great question because it's both an opportunity and a risk when you have that deep, deep heritage. And, you know, the really the key, I think, is to cherish that knowledge and experience that you've learned over really generations of rocket scientists, while at the same time rejecting the dogma, the old habits, the things that you do just because that's the way you do them, not because they actually have a, you know, a, a important mission going forward or any particular reason for being done. And that takes a lot of self-awareness and institutional awareness in the culture to challenge those uh, sort of habits and paradigms and say, well, why are we doing that? Is there a good reason for that? 
Or is that something we could cast aside while not losing the things that made us great? I think that ties in well with a question about risk. And you've gone decades without a failure. So how do you avoid that sort of complacency and mitigate the risk of being lax in what you're doing? Yeah, that's another great question because our record is just really something special. In this industry, one failure in 10, one failure in 20 is sort of expected and planned on. And here we are now at 110, as you pointed out, a decade of flying without a single failure. And it's truly remarkable. And it's the way we approach these missions that I believe is key to that. You know, we always talk about them internally whenever we count. We say, well, it's 110, one at a time. We treat every mission as if it's its own unique flight, as if it's the first time. And the other thing that I think makes a profound impact on how we approach that work is that we are consciously and deliberately aware of the mission itself. So, for example, next week we're going to fly a mission out to Bennu, the asteroid, to collect samples and return. That is a project that has been years and years in its conceiving and its development and finally the creation of the spacecraft. The principal investigator has been working this for a significant portion of their career and the weight of that mission weighs heavily on our shoulders and we're always conscious of making sure we don't let that mission down. So that plays a big role in that. And of course, you put that together with our experience and our discipline. And we set that, you know, sort of all that other 110 behind us and we focus on that one mission to make sure that we are keeping that trust and really satisfying that. And of course, nothing, nothing trumps mission success at ULA. The first flight of a vehicle and its 100th flight are very different in terms of problems that have already been solved and problems that, you know, um, still have some uncertainty. So if you approach every flight as the first one, but you're using hardware that has been, that has had problems and had problems resolved many times over, do your engineers work to uh, maybe think of new ways they could fail and have that be the main driver in treating it like it's the first one? Yes, that is actually a very insightful way of thinking about that. That is a big part of it. And every time we fly, after the flight has come and gone and the spacecraft is off doing its mission, sort of the fanfares, you know, has moved on, you know, the applause has died, our guys are still at work. You know, our men and women are studying every piece of data off that flight for months afterwards, looking for any indication or any weakness or any opportunity to improve the reliability of the system. And then we have a very structured process that gathers any of that new learning and flows it back into the fleet. You know, and I think the other thing I'll, I'll maybe share with you that a lot of people don't appreciate is that it's not 110 of the same rocket. It's not even 64 of the same Atlas. You know, we actually fly 43 different configurations. And that 110 is spread across those. Some of the configurations in terms of a combination of the booster with a certain number of strap-ons and perhaps a certain uh, combination of, of payload fairings and adapters may have only been flown two or three times. So as we approach that mission, uh, we're really studying the heck out of that to make sure that there's not going to be any surprises with the dynamics of the vehicle 
how it's going to be controlled, what the aerodynamics might be. All of that is really pretty fresh, and there's a, a lot of you know, really sophisticated engineering that goes in before every mission. And then, like I said, we just grind it to dust after it's over and get every bit of learning we can. Do you think there will ever be a time where you um, call a vehicle design finished? Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't really. Even if we flew the same configuration every time, you, you live in a world where there's obsolescence in electronics and materials will become available or not available. And so there's always that, that uh, you know, low level of change that's creeping into your configuration that you have to evaluate and make sure that there's no surprises. Uh, over the summer, Phil and I got a tour of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, uh, and we got oh, to see how, how you know a NASA Research Center works. Uh, NASA is uh, getting close to launching their uh, SLS in 2018 uh, and re-entering the launch market for you know mostly their missions. Uh, how do you uh, compare how ULA operates for its launches compared to NASA? Is it very similar? Uh, do you guys do something very different? Well, there's a lot of similarity in how we approach these space missions. And, and of course, you know, those missions are very complementary. You know, our, our job is to carry things to orbit around the Earth and occasionally send them on these great, epic, you know, interplanetary, multi-year exploration missions like OSIRIS-REx, like Pluto that was, you know, close to a decade in length. The SLS is going to do this just tremendous exploration job pushing further into the solar system really in a class of its own but in terms of how we approach mission assurance mission success the disciplines that we roll through as we come up on a launch there's a great deal of similarity because we have been nasa's primary partner for decades and decades and we've really grown up a culture and a set of techniques and processes together almost as a team and so, for example, when we launch a NASA mission, and we launch most of the missions that NASA has ever flown, all 17 times to Mars, very excited about, by the way, Mars 2020 that was just awarded to us. Congratulations. Uh, you know, we're, oh, thank you. Well, that's a, just a hand-in-glove relationship. They start working with us the moment that award happens, and they're in our design reviews and our technical meetings. They're walking through the uh, launch operations activities and planning that goes on out at the range. So we're really tied at the hip all the way through a mission like that. Very cool. Um, with uh, new launch providers like SpaceX and international providers and NASA having its own launch system again, uh, do you still, again, think you're going to be the primary launcher of NASA payloads? But also, uh, are you continuing to focus on Department of Defense payloads or commercial payloads? What do you think in the future that ratio is going to end up being for ULA? Sure. So we have been the primary provider for national security and for NASA exploration. We are now joining uh, the NASA launch team to provide lift for the space station and starting in about a year and a half or so for crew missions going back to the space station. So that's those two missions are really an entrance to ours. We're also going to expand our presence in commercial launches, you know, truly commercial launches for private companies. So I would expect that we'll do about as many lifts for NASA as we will do for the Air Force and NRO, with maybe about half that number of, uh, of either one of those 
uh, being provided to purely commercial providers, generally telecommunications, and some earth observation like the, like the Worldview launch that we're going to do here uh, shortly. Can you speak about ULA's involvement about, with um, launching small sats? Right now, small sats are kind of secondary payloads, um, and there are new launch providers dedicated to bringing these smaller payloads like CubeSats or um, other, you know, really tiny payloads to space. What What is ULA's outlook on the small sat community and the, the market there? Sure. Well, I'm actually pretty excited about where small satellites are going. And I, I really think that CubeSats, which are primarily being used as research platforms, often by universities, are sort of, you know, sort of the gateway drug to the smaller satellite technology that's going to come very soon, because they're providing the research and the opportunities to experiment. I think there's going to be a bright future there. And what I envision is that LEO is going to essentially become the app store of space where people will have these very inexpensive, very small satellites um, in ubiquitous quantities in low Earth orbit, and they'll find all kinds of uses for them, uses that we haven't even imagined yet, just like the app store on your smartphone, where, you know, it seems like every week someone has a new idea. And the presence of those are going to lower the threshold to bring that innovation into the marketplace. Now, in, in terms of our role there, I really want to see that happen and to remove some of the big barriers that have stopped that these last several years. Because if you're a, a CubeSat, for example, trying to do research that leads to this ever-increasing utility in small satellites, not necessarily as small as, as CubeSats, but in that size class, it's very difficult to get to space. You know, you're sort of hitchhiking a ride on somebody else's payload, and you don't necessarily know when you're going to go or where you're going to be taken to. And so we started an initiative just last year uh, where we're going to make a, uh, a large volume of lifts for CubeSats available to this community. And on, the vision is that on the back of every Atlas rocket, you know, on the back of every Centaur upper stage that goes on an Atlas, will be a CubeSat carrier taking a dozen or two dozen CubeSats up, always with a berth or two free to universities to make it easier for them to do research. And when we reach that state, all by ourselves, we will be lifting more CubeSats in a year than the entire rest of the industry accomplishes. And I think that's going to unlock that door and allow, you know, this proliferation to begin. Now, in addition to that, there's, you know, an opportunity to have secondary payloads that are larger and big dispensers that we can put on the rocket behind the primary spacecraft. And we have a number of partners that we're working those initiatives with as well. So I think this is going to be a pretty exciting you know, sort of new mission area that you're going to see appear over the next several years. And as a university group uh, designing and building eventually our own CubeSat, we're very thankful for um, that sort of uh, opinion from you and, and look forward to the future. Well, and you know, the neat thing about a provider like ULA, for example, is we're going to, you know, we're going to space all the time. We go to space 10, you know, 12, 14, 15 times a year, and there is always excess capability on the rocket. After you put your primary payload on there, and after we stack up our margins, and we're pretty conservative, you know, we, we want to make sure that there's nothing going to get in the way of getting that launch off on time. 
But the rocket itself is always finite. You know, it is of a certain size. And when we add the strap-on solid rocket motors, you know, they, they come one at a time, but those are integer increments. So every single launch has excess capability that could be easily used for smaller satellites with very little, I mean, essentially marginal costs because we're already going to space and we're just able to add those on for almost no cost at all. Now, uh, in the new space market, we're seeing a lot of startup space companies targeting uh, nanosats and small sats, usually under you know 500 kilograms. I was reading an article today of using uh, air launch for five kilogram uh, satellites. Does ULA uh, have any ideas of kind of moving into that market, or they're going to let new space kind of take over dedicated small launch? Yeah, we absolutely do. We're consistent with really the, the attributes and, and some of the vision I shared with you just a moment ago, I, I, we really intend to be the leader in that marketplace. Because we have that regular, I mean, this is like a regular freight service going to space. You know, we're the, we're the five o'clock train, you know, we're always going and there's always going to be space to bring somebody with us. Do you think that ride sharing for small sats and CubeSats is a better option uh, than dedicated small sat launchers? Well, I do because just the economies of scale. And, you know, for small quantities, they'll ride share like we just described. And you can see the obvious advantage of being able to count on someone who's flying once or twice every single month, already has a primary payload, paying the majority of that cost. And you're able to just jump on for, you know, the price of a, you know, a, a dispenser, basically, and a little bit of integration cost. So there's just a tremendous economic advantage there. When these very large constellations go up, you know, there's, there has been a lot of talk about um, ubiquitous uh, communications based in LEO in order to provide broadband almost globally and with very little latency. Um, those are going to go up in large, large quantities if that marketplace actually appears. And the initial establishment of those constellations is very well suited for a vehicle like Atlas or like our future Vulcan Centaur or Vulcan Atlas rocket because we would be able to take up an entire plane of spacecraft, perhaps even two planes depending on the rocket we use because we have that much performance. Later, when there's replenishment, then it'll be an interesting competitive marketplace where you'll have the ability to ride share to replace a, you know, a dozen or so spacecraft or, or whether you get surprised and you think, well, I just want to take one up. Maybe I'll take one of these dedicated launchers. You know, we'll have to see how that market sizes up. You know, I, I think it's always exciting to have competition and new players and offerers in a market because that's how you get innovation. I think a lot of people have an idea that innovation is somehow one person who has this just one perfect idea, and then all of a sudden, everybody jumps on that, and that's not really how it works. Innovation happens when you have lots of people coming to the same, to the same problem, and they all have different ideas, and everybody's trying something different, and then over time... The market reveals which ones of those are really the great ideas, and they emerge. And then when you look back on them, you sort of forget about that chaotic initial experience. 
But that's actually how innovation occurs. So I'm pretty excited about having all these new players in the market and, you know, what that's going to do. So I like to uh, change gears here, moving from, uh, you know, ULA currently to uh, some of the more uh, long-term projects you're working on. Uh, you guys announced your next-generation launch vehicle, Vulcan, with a brand-new upper-stage uh, ASUS, which is the Evolve Cryogenic, or uh, Advanced Cryogenic Evolve Stage. Uh, pardon me. Yeah, I think it needs a better name, huh? That's not very catchy yet. <laughs> Space Industry is known for their amazing acronyms, OSIRIS-REx being a prime example. Uh, could you give us a brief, like, 30-second or 60-second rundown of ASUS and Vulcan? Yeah, you know, ASUS is really exciting to me because it, it shifts the paradigm on reusability, and it's going to enable whole new missions in space. And fundamentally, what it will do is it will extend the phenomenal operation time of Centaur, which is already seven or eight hours, the longest operating upper stage ever developed, by a factor of 20. They'll inherently go for many, many days. And then it is reusable and refuelable inherently, which would allow us to operate in space for months or even years. It is a revolution in the way we think about reusability. Normally, no one ever thinks about reusing an upper stage. Upper stages, by definition, are orbital. You've just put all of this energy, all of this delta V to get it to space and have it in orbit. To bring it back, you've got to take all that back out. So people usually ignore it, and they focus on the first stage because first stages are suborbital. They just fall back to the Earth. All you got to do is control that so they're not damaged or destroyed, and recover them and sort of work about, you know, worry about the economics of how you make that pay, ACES completely breaks that paradigm and says, well, why do you have to bring it back to Earth to reuse it? Why can't you just leave it in space? And over time, you'll even accumulate a fleet of these space trucks up there waiting to do all kinds of different jobs. And with that tremendous operating time, and with that delta V that has already been invested in that stage and does not have to be invested a second time in that individual propulsion element, you can do all kinds of missions that you have not done before. Now, the technology behind this is sort of novel. We use cryogenic propellants, and that's special in an upper stage. Most people will use hydrocarbon propellants throughout their rocket, and that limits the duration that they can operate in space. Space is very, very cold. And so one of the unique things about even Centaur is that we can do these very difficult direct injection orbits that require extremely long coast times between burns. We can only do that because of these cryogenic propellants that are literally still boiling in space, whereas the hydrocarbons after a while, why they just be this big floating block of ice up there, well, what we do with ACES is we recover the propellants that are boiling off and normally waste, and we recycle them through an internal combustion engine that will burn the oxygen and hydrogen that's boiled off and run compressors to repressurize the tanks. That's where we get this extreme longevity from. They also generate electricity so we can take all our primary batteries off and they can operate the attitude control system. So this whole separate propulsion system that's typically based on hydrazine for station keeping can go away. And all of these subsystems wrapped up into one simpler design that lasts longer, 
performs longer and actually costs less. Awesome. That's that's super exciting. Uh, I was reading through the uh, ASIS announcement uh, white paper, and there's a lot of really cool uh, future applications. Uh, one thing I had a question about uh, is what is your kind of orbital mission plan for second stage reuse? Uh, you know, having a launch vehicle, putting the second stage plus payload into orbit, does that go into a low Earth orbit parking orbit and then off into uh, a geo spot? Uh, what would the follow-up mission to refuel ACES be like? Uh, can you share any details on that? Sure. There's at least three or four different ways or con-ops that we imagine these guys are going to get used. And I'm going to start maybe with the simplest one that we call distributed lift. So in, in distributed lift, we're using two rockets to take an, an extremely large payload to space. And so we would go up first with our either our fuel or our ACES, and then and a payload that was so large that we could just barely get it to space. And then we would come up with a second lift with nothing but fuel, refuel that, uh, you know, that upper stage, and then, then take that very, very heavy payload. Remember, you know, once you're to Leo, you're two-thirds of the way to anywhere else in the solar system in terms of delta V. And then finally take that giant payload to wherever it's going to go. Now, this has some pretty exciting, you know, opportunities for things like space telescopes and research because we would be able to take payloads as much as three times larger that can be lifted today to those final destination orbits. And that's really a pre-planned to-lift ability to do something you can't do today. And the reason you can do it with ACES is because of that very long longevity. We can hang around up there and you know, wait for the second lift and do the refueling, the fuel transfer operation and still make this possible. So that in itself is pretty cool, but that's not the coolest mission. The next thing that we could envision is that every time you take a, you know, a standard payload up, you've got an ACES stage now that can go and rest in a parking orbit. Some of them would be in LEO. Some of them might go out and, and wait above the geosynchronous orbit. And because of their longevity, again, they could either take a, what we would call an extended duration mission kit with them, which is essentially a jerry can. Think of it as a jerry can of propellant, a separate tank from the main propellant tanks that can store propellant for months or even as long as a year. When you don't have penetrations in the tank for things like engines and in uh, other kinds of plumbing, you can actually store propellant for very, very long times. And then those guys are up there waiting for somebody who's going to, again, you know, lift something to Leo and then just they'll swoop down and pick it up and take it to its final destination or perhaps participate in constructing some infrastructure in space, something we really can't do today. You know, today, with, you know, a few very notable exceptions like the space station that were enormous endeavors. It's just not practical to physically interact with a spacecraft once you've taken it up. It goes up there in one rocket, and then it's done. But because we'd have these ACES up there, why, you know, we can come and take two things and bolt them together or, you know, really begin to develop that infrastructure. So that's kind of the second way. A variant of that is bringing additional propellant to space. Remember how I talked about every rocket has excess capability. Well, normally that just goes to waste. 
I mean, over the 10 years of flying rockets here at ULA, if you added up all the excess capability we've flown, it's 100,000 pounds. Well, that could have been propellant or small sats or whatever, but every time we fly, if there's excess capability, well, we might just take another load of propellant up. And then so for essentially no additional cost, we're bringing more propellant to orbit and we're refueling ACES and we're keeping those going. And then finally, the ultimate vision is that once we've been able to develop the infrastructure in space that this capability makes possible, we can begin recovering water from the moon and from the near-Earth objects and then reducing that into our rocket fuel, our propellant. And now you truly have a space-based self-sustaining economy in cislunar where the propellant is coming from space to be used in space. Uh, this is one of the things that makes me so excited. Actually, we had a guest a couple episodes ago, um, a student at RIT, uh, Anthony Hennig, wrote, wrote his thesis on how extracting water from near-Earth objects or the moon could become the next, the main uh, commodity. So the if ACES is up orbiting the Earth constantly and you keep refueling it, what about maintenance? How are you going to, what's the lifespan you expect to keep these in orbit? Is it indefinite? Yeah, certainly initially we'll, we'll plan on the, on the ACES stage having a certain finite life without it requiring any maintenance. And we plan to design them for about 10 years on orbit. But eventually, when we have this cislunar activity going on, one of the activities in space will be servicing of spacecraft. And so it would not be inconceivable that ACES would go get a, a spacecraft or a habitat and bring it to one of these facilities, perhaps in, in orbit around the Earth or even at L1 to be serviced, to be maintained. And then another time, you know, the ACES will come in and get its oil changed and tires rotated, further extending its life. Do you anticipate maintenance being done autonomously, or do you expect to send astronauts up on maybe a reusable vehicle or space plane or something um, similar to how there was a mission to re uh, repair Hubble? It'll be both. So initially, we'll have fairly modest servicing activities happening in space that will best be supported by robotic or autonomous uh, machines. And then eventually we'll have the infrastructure there present to do much more involved uh, servicing and, and maintenance of spacecraft that will require people. But, you know, remember, it's you want to think of this as a big, you know, logistics activity that's supported by a certain level of infrastructure. Eventually, we're going to have thousands of men and women living and working in space. But if you're going to have a space-based, you know, servicing depot that's operated by people that can do these very extensive operations on spacecraft, you need other things. You need a place for those people to live. You need, so you need commercial habitats that are supporting them. You need a transportation system so they can get back and forth. You need to have food. You might need to have artificial gravity to mitigate their health effects, depending upon how long you're going to deploy people. So this is a journey that we start is something as simple as ACES being refueled from excess capability. And we're building infrastructure all the time. We're creating these, these villages or these cities in space so that eventually that's the end state. 
Wow, that was a, a really grand vision. A lot of exciting stuff in there. Uh, I have a question uh, with Asus. Uh, when it starts flying uh, with Vulcan, is the first Asus stage uh, when you launch going to have the hardware uh, necessary for fuel transfer, or is that something go going to, you know, work out the kinks and incorporate on future revisions? So we're working on the technology now with NASA on the Earth to understand how to transfer propellants, what it will take, and how much can be anticipated. And we're actually being surprised at how easy this is to do and the yields that we're able to get. We're getting as much as 99% fuel transfer here on Earth, and we expect to be able to achieve that in orbit as well. I'm not going to tell you everything about how we're doing it because there's some secret please? sauce in there. Please, please. <laughs> I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll say this much. Thermodynamics is a wonderful thing. <laughs> but in terms of the first few flights, whether or not we'll have the fuel transfer capability built in or we'll simply initially rely on the inherent very long operating time, we haven't made that decision yet. So with Vulcan is the launch vehicle that's going to be taking these ASA stages up. Uh, could you give us like a brief kind of rough timeline for when that starts going to start flying? Um, also, uh, ULA proposed smart reuse, which is your eventual uh, reuse program for Vulcan. Sure. So the uh, let me start with the timeline. So our baseline plan is to field the Vulcan booster with a current Centaur upper stage at the end of 2019. And then about two or three years later, we would be in a position to begin introducing a Vulcan booster with an ASIS on top. So more like 23, 24, you would see the first flights of Vulcan ASIS configuration. Now, in terms of the, the smart reuse, that's one of these great examples of what we were talking about a minute ago, where lots of people are coming to the, to the field of reusability with different ideas. And as you know, you know, one other company is looking at recovering whole boosters, and that when we look at it as something that we said, well, you know, that's an engineering problem. You should be able to do that. And they've shown that they've been able to bring them back. And now they've sold one of these used rockets to uh, an operator. And so they'll, they'll eventually figure out the logistics around that and the operations and, and how to fly them. But from an economic point of view, which is the only reason we're doing that, within this context, a little different than what Blue Origin is doing. But in terms of the expendable launch vehicle marketplace, we look at reuse in order to make lift cheaper. When you look at recovering boosters, there's a lot that goes into it. And it's a fairly difficult place to start that journey, in our opinion, because, you know, you just to sort of give you some rules of thumb to, without torturing you with a lot of financial analysis, you know, the rocket itself is about half the cost of a launch service. And then the first stage is about half the cost of the rocket. And so that means if you could reuse your first stage and not have to spend any extra money in making it reusable or refurbishing it or anything like that, let's just pretend you could do all that for free and you could reuse it an infinite number of times, why you'd be able to make the whole launch service, say, 25 or 30% less expensive. And that would absolutely be worth doing. And so that, that's what makes it interesting. Now, the problem with that is that it's not free. You know, an expendable launch vehicle, which is what people generally start from, 
doesn't have anything on there that doesn't need to be there because weight is the killer when we're going to space. So you start adding things. You add landing legs, and, you know, grid fins and hydraulic systems to operate and steer all of those. And then you can't use all your propellant. You got to save propellant. So that means you can't do it on every mission. You can only do it on missions that have enough excess capability to afford to leave that much gas in the gas tank, so to speak. And you need avionics because the primary avionics flew away with the upper stage. So you add all this stuff to it. And then you need some logistics to capture it and bring it back and some, some expense of refurbishing it and getting it ready to go. And when you do all of that math, when we model that, it looks to us like, well, you need about 10 reuses to pay all that off and break even. And that means you want to reuse every booster 15 or 20 times to really make it economically worth your while. So that's kind of a tall place to start. I mean, you know, you could imagine going through an experience where you'd get, you know, you'd try some number of times and you'd consider all of that part of the non-recurring investment, but eventually you'd get it working and you'd get one back and you'd say, wow, that was a great engineering accomplishment. I'm going to put that one in a museum. Okay, cool. The next one now needs to be reused 20 times to break even. And then maybe that one blows up. Now you need 30 reuses. And so this can snowball pretty quick. Eventually you'll get the hang of it, but it's a difficult place to start. And we are a believer in reusability, which means we want to see it succeed and want to see it stick and get going. So we kind of stood back from that problem and said, let's systems engineer this a little bit. You know, what, uh, what's really valuable on the booster? Where's all the money? And as it turns out, two-thirds the value of a booster is just the engine all by itself. And two-thirds of the weight are in the tanks, the least expensive, least valuable element of the rocket booster. So we took a completely different view of how to do this, given that sort of systems engineering idea about what's important and what's not. And we said, well, wouldn't it be cool if you could just get the engines back? Because that's the expensive part. And as it turns out, if you had a way to do that, and of course, we came up with that concept in, in Smart Reuse, well, we'll just sever the engines and bring them back. That means you get to do it every time. Because you don't have to save any propellant to fly this vehicle back to Earth. When the mission's done and all the propellant's burned up, we just sever this, this engine module. We let it fall back to Earth. We use a, a inflatable hypersonic shield to protect it from the reentry environment, something that NASA has developed for Mars missions. Very little weight, very little complexity. And then... You know, we pop out a parafoil and we scoop it up with an airplane. And so it has another side benefit of experiencing more benign environments on the way back than it actually experienced in a typical engine firing, which is another challenge to the refurbishment costs when you want to reuse an entire booster. Because as it turns out, rockets are made to fly away from their plume and not into them. And so... You know, when you're recovering your booster, first you've got to experience all this hypersonic plasma coming in, you know, coming in from high Mach number. Then you got to, you know, fire up your engines and, you know, fly your way back to the earth, sort of baking the back end and hot exhaust from the rocket engine. And all of that goes away. 
and we just simply float it back to Earth and pick it up. So when you do the math around that type of approach, it looks like you need about two reuses to break even. It's still not free. There's a little additional hardware and there's logistics and all that. You've got to retest the engine and all that sort of thing. But that's a much lower economic hurdle to cross than 10 reuses. So it occurred to us that that would be a better place to start this journey because we would be more likely to have success and therefore we'd be more likely to stick and then we'd just continue marching through the reuse you know, sort of journey that would be ahead of us. What do you think the turnaround period on recovered engines would be? So the turnaround period is going to be really, really fast. So you've got a complete engine and really all it's going to need is in theory, nothing more than a couple of touch-ups and a uh, static engine firing. So we would expect to be able to turn those engines in a couple of weeks. And the majority of the two weeks is going to be driving them to the test facility and back. Uh, can you share some details on that that process, like what actually happens in flight? With the parafoils, are they um, able to be controlled? And um, when you can, when engines are coming back, do you plan to return them uh, to land or um, recover them? You said as an, with an airplane. Um, do you like anticipate that being near the launch site, or will you have a ship out in the ocean? Sure. So yeah, let's talk about that. So yes, uh, the parafoils uh, by their nature are steerable, and so the concept is to put a GPS receiver on the parafoil with a little avionics package and steer it back to a fixed point to make it convenient to be recovered. We'd actually anticipate using a helicopter to recover it uh, simply because of the weight of the engines. Engines are really, really heavy. And it's more practical to use one of the uh, heavy helicopters to do that than a fixed wing. And yes, that would then be returned to a ship to be brought back. Because we're not saving all this propellant, and having an active propulsive system fly it back, it's going to be downrange. So the engine would separate from the booster and then continue on its ballistic trajectory until it's re-entered to a slow enough velocity to pop the parafoil, and then it could fly a modest distance back uprange to be recovered by this uh, helicopter and ship combination. How does a helicopter catch a falling engine? Does it just have hooks on the bottom? Yes, yeah, so there's a big boom, and they're typically steerable, and you would fly up to this rendezvous with it, if you will, to this uh, engine dangling from its parafoil, and then you just sort of fly up to it and you scoop up the parafoil. Kind of the cool thing about this is that's not new technology. Uh, the very first spy satellite, Corona, would re-enter with its film canister, yeah, back in the 60s, right? And it would simply, yeah, it would just re-enter and then uh, it would pop a chute and a fixed-wing aircraft in that case because that was a relatively small object would just sort of rendezvous, sweep up and catch it in a big hook and fly it home. So this is that same kind of technology. Even the engine separation was previously on Atlas. Early versions of Atlas, when it was still a ballistic missile, would carry four engines. And we had what we called back then a a half stage. And that was about, you know, shedding weight. You guys understand about shedding weight when we're going to space. And in those days, you know, the engines weren't as large, so it took four engines to produce the thrust. Well, at, at a certain point in the trajectory, uh, the, you know, the 
the rocket equation was such that it would make sense to drop off two of them. And so they would cut, separate, and fall away. And in that case, they weren't reused. They just went into the ocean. Well, we're doing the same thing here, except we're recovering them. So uh, it sounds like a lot of the bits and pieces that make up Smart Reuse are problems that have already been solved by you or by NASA, um, and you're kind of putting them together in a way. Yep, you have it. So that's kind of another neat window into how innovation often works. Sometimes it's a completely new technology that's never been conceived before. Other times it's taking technologies from other applications, combining them in a new way, and bringing them to a new marketplace. And that's really what we're doing here with Smart Reuse, which gives us the added benefit of the investment being smaller and the risk being lower. Uh, you announced that you're looking at Blue Origin's BE4 engine, which is a Methylux engine, uh, with AR1 by Aerojet being the backup engine. Uh, what was the reason to switch from Carolox or Hydrolox, which is what uh, Delta uses, to a Methylox design, one that hasn't actually been flown on large launch vehicles? Yeah, these are both perfectly good propellants, both methane or liquefied natural gas and kerosene. You know, the, the advantage that the BE-4 methane engine had was really, really two things. One, when we talk about these reuse capabilities, methane burns inherently cleaner and the refurbishment would theoretically be somewhat less for a reused methane engine, although a kerosene engine is also practical to reuse. But really the most important reason that we chose uh, the BE-4 as the primary path was simply that it was already way ahead. The BE-4 engine had been in development for three years already by Blue Origin for their own application. And when we entered into the scene with the need to replace the RD-180, there was a lot of urgency around the schedule to get that done. And so by teaming up with Blue Origin and shifting the design point of that engine to higher thrust, it would meet our needs while still satisfying theirs, it gave us a year and a half to two year jump on any other solution. That's really why we went there. Now, uh, Blue Origin is currently actively developing New Shepard. That's their suborbital tourist rocket. They, they've uh, landed and reused multiple times. Uh, so they're currently yeah. in the suborbital tourism uh, markets. However, they've announced their very big brother rocket, which is based on the BE-4 engine platform as well. So it's a Methylox rocket. Uh, and they're going to be serving orbital launch. Uh, now, it's a common phrase in the space industry that rockets are built atop their engines. Uh, what uh, kind of difference is between Vulcan uh, and Very Big Brother? Do you see Blue Origin being a competitor, or you're very happy to be a partner with them, you know, using that same technology and sharing flight heritage between those two platforms? Yeah, I really see them as a partner. The partnership we entered into just on the engine development that we'll both have on both our rockets is a really pretty big deal. You know, the, the, the engine is arguably more complex than the rest of the rocket put together, and it's a huge investment. And between the two of us, this engine itself is being fully and privately funded. So that, in it, you know, all by it, all by itself, is kind of a, a heavyweight and profound partnership. And as time goes by, we just continue to find other ways that we can sort of partner with one another to take our our respective missions forward, and the missions that we're focused on are really very different, although complementary in terms of the technology. You know, we are there to take these very difficult payloads, 
uh, to very difficult orbits to support the vision that we just talked about in cislunar space, but also these very important NASA and government missions. Jeff's interest, Blue's interest, is really around space tourism initially and then taking people to do that type of mission even in an orbital context. And so it's kind of a different problem. You know, a few minutes ago, we talked about the economics of reusability. What Jeff is attempting to do at Blue Origin is a different context altogether. So with something like the New Shepard, where people are going to be taken for a, a space tourism experience to you know, be in space, to experience weightlessness for several minutes and all of that, is a mission that you want to fly pretty frequently. You know, several times a week. And the economic calculations around flying 100 or 200 times a year are very different than they are for the traditional expendable launch vehicle marketplace where we're flying 10 or 20 or at most 30 times a year in anybody's grandest vision. It would simply not be practical to do 100, 200 flights to space every year, flying you know, literally a couple, two, three times a week with expendable launch vehicles. But conversely, there's missions that something like, a, say, a single stage to orbit or even a multiple stage to orbit fully reusable vehicle would be impractical to accomplish. So you guys know, you know weight is the big thing when you go to space. And the reason an expendable launch vehicle is expendable is because the only thing we really want in space is the payload. <laughs> and, you know, most of the rocket is propellant. And let's say you got, you know, a million pound rocket. And you're using that million pound rocket to put a very tiny spacecraft out, you know, out to an outer planet or in some very high difficult orbit. Maybe it's only 10,000 pounds. You know, even after we take all the propellant off, there's still 100,000 pounds of, of dry weight that constitutes the structure and machinery of that rocket. And if you had to take that entire rocket and make it reusable to one of these very difficult orbits, you're no longer taking 10,000 pounds to space, you're taking 110,000 pounds to space and then flying it back home. And so the math catches up to you pretty quick and you're now talking about a, a behemoth of a rocket that is almost beyond human comprehension. And so there are missions for which the expendable launch vehicle approach is the only practical solution until there is a fundamentally new technology around propulsion. And so what Jeff is doing is very different than what we are doing here at ULA, but a lot of the technologies are very complementary. And so it's a great partnership. You know, we're getting this terrific engine. We're going to both use it so it'll be produced in greater quantities, which makes it less expensive for both of us. And then as time goes on, you know, I, I have no doubt that our partnership will just deepen and widen. And I'm really not concerned at all about uh, Blue Origin as a competitor. So after ASIS, what do you think the next big leap is? And are you at ULA already thinking about that? Oh, we absolutely are, but I'm not going to be able to share that with you today. <laughs> Another way to phrase that, right, is what paradigms do you see changing or being most prominent in the next 20, 30 years, right? We're just, you know, ending an era that went on for 40 years of fully experimental rockets for every flight. 
Now we have companies like ULA, like SpaceX, like Blue Origin, practicing reuse, trying to see if it's economical. Uh, and a lot of people are saying, it's like, okay, well, this is the new era of semi-reusable or fully reusable rockets. Uh, do you see that continuing? Do you, what kind of changes do you think that brings uh, in the long term uh, after ACES is flying to the moon, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Well, you know, I, I see a great democratization of space in just the next handful of decades. Up till now, space has been the purview of only the elite. You know, it, it's been an environment for exploration, really, only where a handful of professional astronauts who are remarkable human beings with millions of dollars of training and experience, and just a few of them go up and, and do an important science mission and they come back. And at any one time today, there's still, there's never more than five or six people in space. And, and other people, when they look into the future, I, I think they, they have some grand and exciting ideas, but in a way, you know, we're, we're sort of talking about, well, maybe, you know, seven billionaires going to Mars. I want to make life better for seven billion people here on Earth. And the vision that I have is that there are going to be thousands of men and women living and working in space. And they're going to be there because their jobs are there. So Lewis and Clark, you know, NASA went through and and explored LEO and explored the cislunar space and they've explored the moon and now they're going to push deeper into the solar system. We're going to come in behind them with the wagon trains and the, you know, and the freight trains and we're going to commercialize all of that environment and we're going to make it possible for people like you to go to space as a routine activity. I mean, you know, it's, it's very conceivable that one of you guys will be among those first few thousand people who are living and working right there in space. So it's a completely different vision of what space has been. And when all of that happens, there are going to be missions and activities in space that we can't even conceive of today. Yeah, that's a really uh, inspiring future. I can give you one more fast question if, if you have a quick one. So uh, this is a more personal question. Uh, you graduated from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, uh, the birthplace of the CubeSat standard. Uh, and if your Wikipedia page is correct, uh, have a BS ME in mechanical engineering. Uh, I was wondering, uh, how did you get involved in the aerospace industry? And now that you're the CEO of a spaceflight company, do you use those engineering skills on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, do they ever come in useful in that administrative role? Sure. Well, yes, I did go to Cal Poly, and, and yes, I am a mechanical engineer. I became an intern at Lockheed Space Systems when I was still in college, and that was my introduction to the space industry and to rocketry. You know, I had been building rockets myself as a kid ever since I was 12, but actually seeing the applications and the real thing hooked me for, for life. After that summer, I knew exactly where I was going back after graduation. And, you know, we just released a, uh, a, a new video in our sort of Rocket Stars uh, series where we, you know, show you what it's like to be an engineer or rocket scientist here at ULA. And the most recent one is really what it's like to be a mechanical engineer. So uh, I encourage you guys to, to go take that in. It's kind of fun. But in terms of was the education valuable throughout my career, of course, I spent the first 10 years as nothing but a rocket scientist. And it has been absolutely important to me every single day after that. 
This is a very technical business. And even as a CEO where your focus is really on the strategic direction and execution of that business, the technology is center stage at all times. And I absolutely use my education from Cal Poly as well as the you know 30 plus years of experience doing rocketry on a daily basis. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for you know speaking to us and um, out to the community in general. And thank you for sharing some insight into the United Launch Alliance, um, the, your future plans, and your current capabilities. Alrighty, thank you guys. Bye bye. Thank you. Take care. Have a great day. So awesome! Oh my god, yes! Ugh. Well, that's coming in the episode. to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. Thanks for listening. You can get in touch with us over email at specscast at gmail.com or on Twitter at RITSpecs. A special thanks to Mr. Bruno's assistant, Jessica, for being so patient with us and helping us put this together, and to Alexis for recording that excellent audio. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts for more interviews like this, weekly episodes, and more. Our music is by Kevin Hartnell.